So if you would, as you're now seated, please open the Word of God to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I just want you to hold your place there. We'll get to it in a minute. We've got just a short introduction. (laughs) We've got so much to cover this morning, and I don't want to keep us longer than about 3 o'clock. No, I'm (laughs) just kidding. (laughs) Uh, Just hold your place there. Last week, we began a short series on caring for children, and we began by learning that children are precious to God. Uh, We looked at uh, a lot of different verses, but we saw that children are very precious to God because they belong to Him. God says, children, all children belong to me, and they're precious to God, and he gives them to us for a time, and when he does, they're a blessing, and they're a gift from God to us. And so, they need to be cared for because they belong to him, they're precious to him, and so they need to be precious to us. We learned about the first of four ways that we can see very clearly in his word that they are precious to him. And the first way that we saw was that uh, that there were some specifics about how precious children are to God because He made them in the womb. He makes them in the womb. And it was a difficult study uh, for many of us. It was a a serious study, Um, but it's one that we cannot shy away from. We can't just ignore what's happening. Um, Estimates are that approximately 62 million babies have been killed since 1973. Uh, So if it's really true that God cares for children and He wants them to be cared for, and if they're not being cared for, then we need to know, and then we need to do what we can to help. So this morning, we're going to cover now the next very clear way that we can see that God cares for all precious children, and we hope that this will spur us on. We pray that this will compel us to action as well, um, because God cares for them. And we are looking at four different ways. Last week, we only covered one. This week, also, we're only going to cover one another, another way that, that it's clear that God cares for, him, uh, for children. Uh, but again, the first way that we can see is because he, he makes them in the womb. Uh, that was last week. It's in your notes as a review so that you can, you can see it and you can see some of the major verses that we looked at. Because what we want us to know is that this is from God's Word. That's what we're, that's what we're after, right? We're not after um, emotion necessarily that will follow because of God's truth. And we're not after only the mind. We're after God's Word that impacts the heart and the mind. And it comes out in our actions and in our words. So this is what God wants from us. This is what God says is important, caring for children. And so this is what we want to be spending and need to be spending our time on, caring for children. Um, A second reason then, after that very short introduction, uh, a second reason that we can see clearly from God's Word that He cares for children. Number two, children are special to God because He makes them especially cared for. God makes children especially cared for. When God makes human beings and children, as they're born, babies are totally helpless, right? Right? They can move their arms and they can move their hands and they can move around, but they just can't do anything to to get away from danger or to get towards help. They can't feed themselves, right? They can't change their own diapers. And they don't have a backup plan in case there aren't any diapers, right? They're, They're just incapable of surviving on their own. And they need help. And you know that that's not an accident. God designed them that way. And I believe that the reason that he made them that way is because it makes us care for children. It makes us care for them. He makes them especially cared for because they're helpless. He could have made babies survive on their own at birth. 
Did you know that there are some animals that can be uh, just completely on their own from birth and never need anything from their parents? Snakes are born that way. Well, they're not born, most of them aren't born, they're hatched that way. When the female lays the eggs, she's done, she leaves, and the, babies, the baby snakelets, as they're called, as they come out, um, they're on their own. They get no help, no instruction, no care at all. Lizards are the same thing. If you survive as an egg and you hatch, well, then you start surviving on your own. You continue to do that. But human babies are not snakes or lizards, right? That's not new to us, right? That's not a surprise. But God intentionally designed them to be born completely dependent on somebody else to care for them. Why did he do that? Well, a snake or a lizard is not made in the image of God, is it? God made all animals, but he didn't make any of them in his image. If a snake dies, there's no lasting consequence, right? And for many of us in here, good, that's one less snake in the world, right? <laughs> but snakes just make more snakes. Uh, that's why they have so many at a time. But human beings generally only have one child at a time, right? And that baby is totally dependent on his parents to care for him. Why? Because God wants our attention focused on that little human being born to us, made in God's image. He cares for the children, so to make sure, to ensure that we care for them, he made them totally dependent. You know, that's part of the reason that babies are so cute. You know, when you see a baby, and the baby's just looking up at you, and, and just this cute little thing, you just can't help it. You've got to pick the baby up. You've got to hold the baby, right? It draws us to them. It makes them irresistible when we see their little faces, and they're, they're starting to smile, and, and they're, they're trying to laugh, and you know, whatever's happening, watching their clumsy movements, we just, oh, we just can't help it. We scoop them up in our arms. It's also why they cry. That's why babies cry. It's not to irritate us, <laughs> right? That's why babies cry, because they're helpless. They can't do anything about, they're hungry, or they have a diaper that needs changed, or they need sleep, or whatever it is. A lot of times, babies don't even go to sleep on their own, right? So their cries draw us to caring for them. And that's God's design, so that we will recognize them as helpless babies in order to force us to make sure that we're caring for this little human being made in God's image. You just can't ignore a crying baby. And, and you just can't resist the cute little baby. Even with all the other things that are going on in life and all the other things that we need to do, we have a lot of things happening, but we just can't help it. That's why God made them cute, that's why he made them cry, and that's why he made them dependent on us. As adults... We have a lot of responsibilities. We have a lot of things happening, going to work and, and getting food from the grocery store, preparing the food, eating the food, cleaning up. I mean, everything that happens, everything that's going on, um, you know, once in a while it would be nice to take a break in the middle of everything that's happening, but to make sure that we don't forget to care for the children that are precious and special to God, he made them dependent on us. And so we have to get up in the middle of the night, even when we're tired, to make sure that we're caring for the children that he's given us. And that's part of the way. Part of the reason I believe also that they're cute, because at 2 o'clock in the morning, <laughs> when they're crying again, it makes it just a little bit easier to make sure that we're taking care of them. <laughs> that's our job, to care for them from the time that they're born and totally helpless, all the way through the time when they need a little bit less help. Because if you're a parent of older children, you know that they never stop needing help, right? <laughs> and, and they still need help, but, but we are here to care for them how do we do that? How do we care for them? Do we just give them what they need so that they'll be quiet? What does it look like to care for kids? Well, 
you know, we need to carefully care for children in two ways, and these are in your notes. A, we need to care for them physically. We, we care for them physically. Babies and children have very real needs, and they cannot meet them. We have to meet them for us. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this point. There, there's not any room there in our notes. This should be patently obvious to us, right, from everything that we've known from life and everything we see in the Word. Jesus, though, asks in Matthew 7, he says, Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Right? Nobody, nobody does that. When, when your child comes to you and says, I'm hungry, you don't say, well, eat the rock, right? <laughs> Go over, Look, there's a snake. Go play with a snake, son. Right? Nobody would, would do that unless there's something wrong with you. Um, why is our son asking that? Why is your daughter asking that? Because that's how he survives. You have to give him the food. You don't make him work for it. He's your son or your daughter. You just give that food to the, to the child. And it doesn't even depend on whether you're a good person. Jesus follows that up with, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your Father who is in heaven will give good things to those who ask him. Thank God that he counts all of us as his children in a broad sense because he cares for us and he gives us the food that we need even when we don't have the sense to ask him and even when we're not looking in the right places. But God cares for all of his children. He ensures that we are here to give them the food that they need and care for them physically. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we have even more responsibility to care for people in the name of Jesus in the same way that parents care for their children. You remember our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? And Paul says, we were gentle like a nursing mother with her children, taking care of her children. We were like a father with his children, and we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. That's how Christians care for one another, and that's how Christians should especially care for children. So we care for children physically. But B in our notes, we also need to care for children spiritually. This is how we care for children. It's part of our job to care for them spiritually, to teach them about God, the God who made them, the God who cares for them. Here in Deuteronomy 6, in verse 4, this is called the Shema. This is hear. That, that word Shema means hear. Listen up. Hear this, O Israel. He says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. How much on your heart? How much are they supposed to be in the hearts of us who are hearing? You shall teach them diligently to who? Your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, implied with your children, right? And when you walk by the way with your children, and when you lie down and when you rise up in your home with your children, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Why? So your children will see them. So you will see them. So that these words, the word of God will be in your heart and mind. And so it comes out of your mouth and it comes out in your actions and your children see it and they hear it and they're taught whether it's a formal teaching time or not, right? This is, this is what we're doing as part of our job to care for children. We care for them spiritually. This is all for the benefit of learning God's truth for ourselves, internalizing it, and then letting it spill out in our lives and in our words. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, we are to raise them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. 
Children don't really know much when they're born, physically or spiritually, right? That's why God gives them parents to care for them. They need to be taught. And so that's part of what we do. That's what our responsibility is. And God's ensured that they're cared for by giving them to us. We're teaching them. They need our help per God's design. That's, that's why he made them that way, because we are here to care for them. Now, our culture seems to be losing that simple truth, constantly presenting parents as know-nothings, right? And children as the wise ones and the all-knowing ones. Uh, but this used to be a, an axiomatic truth. This used to be understood universally that children are to be learning from their parents. The parents are to be pouring into their children. And it was so axiomatic that it was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 13. And you remember 1 Corinthians 13, we call it the love chapter in the New Testament, right? We call it the love chapter of the Bible. After elevating love in action above everything and anything we can do, all that we need to be doing is in love. He said love never ends, even though prophecies and tongues and knowledge will pass away. He says, but when the perfect come, the partial will pass away. Then he gives this illustration. He says, when I was a child... I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That's what Paul is saying, and this is an illustration. Now, speaking like a child refers to the way that children speak. Children don't even know how to speak correctly, right? They, they mispronounce words. They put words together that don't go together, and it sounds funny to us. One of our children, when he was younger, would pronounce the word parade as parade. And we thought it was hilarious, and we'd correct him every time. But if you think about it, that's not really that far off, right? If, there's, if there are horses in the, in the parade, <laughs> that's not that far off. But, but children speak like children, right? It, Paul says, I thought like a child. And, and the word thought is, is deep thought and considering things. But, but for children, they're drawing wrong conclusions as they're thinking, right? They're, they're interacting with the world, and they have not been trained to think rightly. I was making light of this last week with our foster baby. She's 11 months old now, and my wife was doing things. She was coming into the room and leaving the room and doing different things, and as she would leave the room, the baby would start crying. And then she'd come back in the room, and the baby would stop. And so I was, in fun, just voicing what might have been going through her mind. You know, when, when mom leaves the room, and she oh, my goodness, where did she go? She's gone forever, right? I mean, she's not thinking correctly. Like, where did she go? What's going to happen to us? We don't know. Oh, there she is. We're okay, <laughs> Right? Everything's back to, oh my goodness, she's gone. She's left again. What's going to happen to us? What's gonna, where did she go? Is she okay? Oh, she's okay. There she is. And so children don't think correctly, right? They need to be trained how to think. <laughs> they don't think rightly. Paul says, I reasoned like a child. How do children reason? Again, short-sightedly, incompletely. It's all about the right here and right now, right? Uh, that's why you don't punish a child three days from now when they did something here and now, right? They'll look at you like, what are you doing? What, what, what's, why are you being cruel? We had a child who would grab anything she could get her hands on when she was little, whether it was good for her to have it or not. We went to a restaurant one time, and we sat her down, and as we were sitting her down, before we had even sat her down completely, she grabbed a knife on the table by the blade. Now, it was, it was a butter knife, so it didn't cut her right away, uh, but we had to, she wasn't thinking right. She wasn't reasoning correctly, right? I mean, we're, we're trying to pry her little hands, her little fingers off, and somehow they had become monstrously strong, <laughs> grabbing onto that knife. Now, we have to reason correctly, because if we just rip the knife out, that's going to cause a lot of problems, right? So we're, we had to 
think carefully and reason correctly, even if the baby wasn't. And she screamed for every inch as we pried her fingers off. Um, Two of our other children thought that they wanted to go swimming, but they didn't think about how they didn't know how to go swimming. (laughs) So they jumped into the pool. Children need to be taught how to reason, right? They need to be taught how to think. And that means not reasoning like a child anymore, but like an adult. That's why God gives us adults. That's why God gives us parents for children, so that we can be teaching them and training them and pouring into their lives. Think about how much time would you spend on a child who who knows everything, who can do everything for himself or herself. You wouldn't need to spend any time, right? You could just let other things happen and come in and, and take over your time. But God purposely makes children dependent for the purpose of ensuring that we are there to care for these precious children that God cares about. God himself uses that truth as an illustration about his care for his people. In Isaiah 49, 15, disaster was coming, judgment was coming upon the people because of their sins, but he still cared for them. He says, I'm always going to care for you, even when you're going through trouble that I'm bringing on you because of your sin. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And the answer is, of course not, right? I mean, of course that wouldn't happen. That just doesn't normally, naturally happen for a nursing mother to forget the child that she's nursing. But even if that were to happen, and tragically it has happened, though it's rare, praise God, and that's sort of the point, God is even more faithful than a nursing mother. He he says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, right? That's how caring God is of his people, but God uses that example of a nursing mother to care, to show the care that she has for her children, to show the care that he has for us. God's even more aware of children than we are. That's the purpose for Psalm 78, and I really wanted to go to Psalm 78 and and take us there and take us through it, but we don't have the time this morning. It's in your notes. Uh, Look at Psalm 78. Teach the children, and here's what we teach them. It's all there in the Word of God. Now, all of this points to the reality that God expects us to care for children. Not only did He make them capable of receiving care, He made them needing care. It's it's necessary to care for them. And to do more than just survive, but for them to grow, they need more than just the bare necessities of life. And I don't intend (laughs) the Disney reference there, but that's what happened. So, um, if we don't care for them, God will, right? If we're not going to care for them, God will. That's why he's called in Psalm 68, 5, the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Uh, God cares for children. He cares for all people who are helpless and cannot care for themselves. That's why he's such a God of grace and mercy, because none of us is capable of caring for ourselves spiritually. He cares for us spiritually. He's the one that saves us. And loves us. But that's why we're dependent on him totally for salvation, right? We're dependent on him to help us see our sin, to recognize it for what it is, to repent that comes from him. Repentance is, it comes from God. Faith that comes from God so that we can believe all of that comes from him. Because he cares for us and because he tells us to care for children, he cares for them. And he made them that way, so it compels us to care. Now, I know we went quickly through that. But I mentioned last week that if we had time, we would talk about what happens to children and babies 
when they die. Now, I think we have to make time for that because it's important. It impacts a lot of us. It's important to us, and it fits in nicely here with God's special care for children, how he makes them especially cared for. When a baby who's conceived in the image of God in the womb is killed, or when a child is killed before he or she can become an adult, what happens to them? What happens to those precious babies and children? Did they die because God forgot to care for them? What is, what is it that happens to those children? Our desire, what we want to believe, is that they would go to heaven, right? That they would go straight to the arms of Jesus. That's what we want to think. Is that what happens? I believe the Word of God teaches us that yes, that is what happens. And so this is a, a short study, Lord willing, short study, in the middle of this study, um, just, to, just to extend the teaching about the preciousness of children to God. There's, there's a statement in your notes with the blank. It says, God saves babies and young children when they die. And so we're going to talk about this, and some will disagree with what I say, but I believe the Scriptures teach that babies are precious to God. They will go to heaven when they die. Surely if He cares for them here and ensures their care here, when they're not cared for here, He takes them home to be with Himself. Again, these are are going to be two reasons that work together that I believe come from the Scriptures, and, and it's simple for us to understand That's what I was working for. (laughs) Simple to understand, but from the Scriptures, so that we can be encouraged about children who die at a young age. Two reasons. A, children are unable to understand the gospel. Children are unable to understand the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Amen? But children cannot comprehend the gospel. Younger children cannot comprehend the gospel. So how can children respond in faith and repentance? Speaking of a child who was to come in Isaiah 7, this child was a sign to Judah to prove that God was not going to destroy them. God said, for before the boy, this child who would be born, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So God is talking about a child here who would be born, and he says children, especially young children, do not know how to choose good and refuse evil. They don't understand what sin is. That's who God's speaking about here. The child who doesn't know good from bad, right from wrong. Um, Chapter 8 tells us a little bit more about this boy and how old he is. He says, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father... Or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So before the child can even say, my mom, my dad, my father, my mother, um, before the child even knows right from wrong, God says, I'm going to save my people. And it was a sign to them of their salvation. But God refers to this child as someone who is unable to communicate well, if at all, And he doesn't even know right from wrong. Well, if he doesn't know right from wrong, how can he understand sin, that he's a sinner? And if you can't understand that you're a sinner, how can you comprehend that you will be judged eternally in hell for that sin? I mean, a child can't understand five minutes, right? Let alone eternity. And if you can't grasp that, how could you ever understand what it means to repent, to turn away from it and believe in Jesus Christ? A child 
wouldn't understand punishment for something he has no ability to comprehend. He would just think that you're cruel. Now, many of us know from the Scriptures that all human beings are born sinners, right? That's what God tells us. Because of sin in us, we are before God sinners, and we're born into a sinful world. And sinners, the Bible says, deserve God's punishment. And that's absolutely true. In fact, that's why it's even possible for children to die in the first place, because they're sinners. If they weren't sinners, they were perfect. They'd be like God. They'd never die. Okay? So they're not perfect. Psalm 51.5, David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Babies and children are sinners like all of us. But that does not mean that they are equally worthy of punishment for their sin. Do you remember Jonah and how he went to Nineveh after the second time God told him to go to Nineveh? And he preached judgment concerning their sin unless they repented, right? Which they did. And you remember how angry Jonah got because they, they repented? And, and it, it, was, it was kind of ridiculous that he was throwing this little fit at the end of, of Jonah. He's, he's sulking in his anger, but at the end, God actually condescends and reasons with Jonah and tries to help Jonah understand. He says at the end of Jonah, chapter 4, verse 11, he says, should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. As for cattle and people, God cares for all of his creation. Psalm 36, 6 says, man and beast, you save, O Lord. But there were 120,000 people who didn't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand. Who's that? Most likely that's children, right? Let alone the difference between right and wrong. Part of the reason that God had mercy on that city was the presence of so many innocent children. He cared for them. Now, the other reason that he, was, that he had mercy on that city was because those who did comprehend repented, right? So it was a combination of those who had the ability to understand and, and responded correctly and those who had no clue what any of it meant. How could God destroy all of those children? Now, remember, even in judgment, God is not just chomping at the bit, just waiting to judge you and waiting to throw punishment on you. He's very patient. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven says... As I live, as surely as God lives himself, he says, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If God takes no pleasure in the wicked dying, how much less children who he's caring for and ensuring that they're, cared, they're being cared for. But they're never even called wicked. Throughout the scriptures, search the scriptures, children are not called wicked. They don't have any way of being wicked. What would God take pleasure in? He says in that same verse, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. He says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God would take pleasure in children repenting of the sin that they're born with, but they can't. He, he, has, he has joy. He says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner repenting than over 99 people that don't have any reason to repent, the righteous people, right? But if you can't turn back, you can't repent because you don't even understand that you're in sin. How would God hold them accountable? So children are unable to understand the gospel. If you cannot comprehend the gospel, you cannot respond to the gospel, right? Again, he made them that way to ensure their care. He didn't make them that way just so he could destroy them if they passed away before they reached adulthood. So that's the first part. 
The second part, the second reason, B, God is the God of justice. Not only can children not comprehend the gospel, B, God is the God of justice, and justice is not cruelty, right? Deuteronomy 32.4 says of God, the rock, his work is perfect and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's who God is. And it is right to punish sin, right? We understand that's justice for sin to be punished. And it's even right for sin that's unknown to be held accountable, for us to be held accountable. That's true even in a human court, right? If you get pulled over for speeding out here on Highway 69, you can't say, oh, I didn't know <laughs> what the speed limit was, right? I mean, you can say that, but it won't work, right? Because it's justice that says, here's the law and here's what you did. Something different from the law. And that's true whether you're going too fast or too slow. As an adult, we're held accountable. But it would not be just to punish a person who doesn't understand what any of that means. It's not just to punish someone who doesn't understand sin and repentance. And it's also not just in human courts. In May of last year, a police officer in Ogden, Utah, pulled over a car for driving 32 miles in a 70-mile-an-hour zone of a highway. And as he walked up to the car, he expected to find someone with a medical condition or some kind of impairment, but it turned out that the driver was five years old. It's, it's, <laughs> this is a true story. His 16-year-old brother was supposed to be watching him, but he fell asleep. So the five-year-old took the keys and the car. I don't know how a five-year-old knows all of this, but he got into the car, started the car, and drove down the highway. He had $3 in his wallet. He told the police officer he was driving to California to buy a Lamborghini. <laughs> now, again, that children thinking and reasoning, right, as children. Now, praise God, everybody was okay. But who did the police work to prosecute? The five-year-old kid? No, they couldn't. The five-year-old didn't have any comprehension. Even the 16-year-old wasn't the one being focused for prosecution. It was the parents. Because it's not just to prosecute a five-year-old who doesn't comprehend what he's just done. Now, he probably knew right or wrong of, you know, driving the car by himself, but he doesn't get the implications of what's happened. You know, that's why we don't have children voting or driving or drinking alcohol or serving in the military or making decisions about tattoos or tobacco or whatever it is, right? Now, again, there are consequences that children do have to face because of sin, but they're not punished by God even in those consequences for their sin. That's why children are born to people who change from just adults into parents at the point that they have children. That's what's supposed to happen. You know, that's why you have so many jokes about, well, it's a parent, you're a parent if, <laughs> right? You change. It changes you. Parents become the responsible guardians, or responsible guardians are located for children to care for them and assume responsibility for them to care for them because they're incapable of doing it themselves. So let's consider a case where a child suffered consequences from sin, but not judgment from God. Do you wish there were something in the Bible that would show us that? Well, I'm glad that you were hoping that, because there is. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, 
and he murdered her husband to try to cover it up. Part of the consequence of that sin was that the baby would die. Now, the child didn't do anything wrong, right? But even though the child had done nothing wrong, God said the child would die because of a con- the consequence of David and Bathsheba's sin together. Now, after the child was born, God said he would die. The child was sick for seven days. All, the whole week of the, the poor little child's life, he was sick. But what did David say about this poor little child? 2 Samuel chapter 12, look in verse 23. Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, David was saying there that he knows where his infant son went when he died. Now, many say that he just meant that he was going to the grave, that, that his son went to the grave, and that's where David would go one day. I can't bring him back, but I'll be going to the grave one day, just like he did. Now, if we look at this passage, it doesn't square with the text, because in his sorrow, again, the seven days the baby was sick, David fasted and prayed and stayed in one spot for a whole week. Look at verse 17. The elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. He didn't even get off the ground. When the child died, look at verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead. For they said, look how he acted when he was alive. What's he going to do now that he's dead? Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. I mean, there's no question about this poor child. Then David rose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And they're scratching their heads like, what's going on here? David comforted himself by saying, I'm going to go where the child is going to go. Now, is it any comfort to him to say, well, he went in the ground and so am I when I die? That wouldn't be any kind of comfort. That's not getting yourself up and cleaning yourself up and worshiping and having hope in yourself for where your child went. He knew where he went. The next verse, in verse 24, drives it home even more. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. What would that look like? You know, don't worry, honey, he's dead and we're going to die too, right? (laughs) Be comforted, we're all going to rot together in the ground. No, that's not comfort, right? He, he, He comforted himself, he worshiped the Lord, and he comforted his wife in the knowledge that we will see him again. We can't bring him back, but we will go to him. But the child who had done nothing wrong suffered consequences of sin by losing his life, but God brought that little baby home to be with him. That little baby couldn't understand right from wrong, let alone repentance and salvation. So God didn't punish that little child with his sin, because of his sin. See, God is the God of justice, not cruelty. If God wouldn't be cruel to animals at the end of Nineveh, all the cattle, and he's not going to be cruel to wicked people who repent, he's not going to be cruel to people who are children, who don't understand. There's more. God says in Deuteronomy 24, 16, he tells us to do the same thing. He says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, right? Each one shall be put to death because of their own sin. If you're committing sin that deserves death, you'll be judged for that yourself. But a child does not inherit the sins, the punishment of the sins from the father. The child inherits sinfulness from his or her parents but he won't inherit the punishment for that sin from God. 
So again, there's no denying that all human beings are sinful and are born into sin. But we're impugning the character of God in his goodness and his justice when we say that he would condemn a child forever in hell because the child didn't believe the gospel. So again, I believe that God will save children because he has put his undeserved grace upon them. And some will disagree. Some may say, no, the the child has to learn the gospel and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to be saved. And I agree, by God's grace through faith in Jesus, that's the only way to be saved. But a person bragging about their knowledge of God and their ability to believe and their ability to repent from sin, Romans 3 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one of us, right? That's Romans 3. It was all the work of God to save me and you, and it's all the same work of God to save a little one. It's all God's grace to enlighten you to be able to come to know Him, who is the author and the completer, the finisher of our faith. It's not us, it's God. Who's the one who grants the gift of faith, not works, so that none of us can boast? It's God. Uh, who is the one who grants repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth? That's God, right? If you contribute nothing to your salvation, God gets all the glory because he's done it all in you. How could we ever say that God can't do that in the life of a child who literally can't understand what any of that means? How could we say that God would not be merciful to save that child? If he could save me, it would, it would be the same act of grace for God to give me all of that that it would to give a child. In fact, it'd be easier for God to do that for a child because ever since coming out of the womb, I have been a blasphemer of God. In my heart, in my mind, in my thoughts, I've, I've blasphemed God. I've even known it was the wrong thing to do and I've still done it. I've made idols in my heart and I've worshipped them not wanting to and it's happened. I've lusted, I've coveted, I've disobeyed. In fact, I've been so angry at people, Jesus says the anger in your heart is the same as killing them because it's the same heart. I mean, in, in ways I'm a, I'm a murderer and an adulterer and a thief and a coveter and a, it's so much worse. How could God save me and forgive me for all of that and not forgive a child who hasn't done any of that yet? Again, I ask a question. Do you wish there were a Bible passage that would help us understand this and see this? That that this is possible for God to do this. That, that, That he would save a child despite circumstances that would most likely end up in a sinful child growing into a sinful sinner. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14. Now, quick context for this little passage. The nation of Israel has just split into two different kingdoms. There's a north and a south. The north was Israel. The south was Judah. The northern king was Jeroboam. And politically, he's a very shrewd king. He's a very shrewd leader. He knew that if people in the northern kingdom of of Israel, continued to head down south to Jerusalem to worship God, and that was the only place God said they were to worship, at the temple there in Jerusalem. He knew if people kept doing that, eventually they would say, you know, um, the, the word of God also says that the house of David should be ruling over all of Israel. And eventually, he knew that he would lose his power. Politically, it would be taken away. The people would just leave his kingdom and follow the southern kingdom of Judah. 
So because he knew that, he invented a new religion. He fired all the Levitical priests of God. He sent them all back to Jerusalem. He made new priests and he made new gods, golden calves for the people to worship. He completely turned his back on God, the God who said, I'm raising you up to be the king of this Israel. He married an Egyptian princess, and she had never been taught to follow God, especially not in Egypt. But as Jeroboam's wife, now the only gods that she follows and knows are the golden calves that Jeroboam has invented so that he can keep his political power. Okay, the two of these people, this couple, had a son named Abijah. And here in chapter 14, he becomes sick. Verse 1 here, at that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, fell sick. And the sickness progresses, and it looks bad. And, and they want to know, what's going to happen to our son? Is, is he going to get better? Is he going to die from this? What's going to happen? So apparently, golden calves can't tell you the future, right? They can't know or tell you the future. So he, they decide to ask one of God's prophets. He tells his wife, dress up, pretend you're somebody else, put a disguise on, and go talk to the prophet of God, the same prophet that told me I was going to be king, go ask him. So she gets there to him in a disguise, and before she can say anything, Ahijah, the prophet, says, lady, why are you pretending to be somebody else, <laughs> right? This God that can see the future, and you want, you want him to tell you the future of your child, you think he can't see through a disguise? <laughs> this is kind of ridiculous, right? But verse 6, he says, but when Ahijah heard the sound of her feet as she came in the door, he said, come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be another? For I am charged with unbearable news for you. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet, you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, God says, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. This is severe, strict judgment from God. God says, anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat, for the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him. Why? For he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. So the message from God for, for Jeroboam and his wife is that every person in your house is going to be killed and then desecrated. Their body is going to be disrespected except this one child who's going to die from this sickness. Why? Because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel. Now in this child, what could possibly be there that would be found pleasing to God so that he would be spared the judgment of being killed and his body desecrated and no one caring for him? Where would anything like that come from? His parents are rebelling against God. Jeroboam has turned his back on God and invented a new religion. His mother has never, as far as we know, even heard of the Lord because she was raised in Egypt. Where would something pleasing like this come from unless God put it there by his grace? Unless God put that in the child. And how would that be different from any of us? 
that God would put in us his grace that would be pleasing to him so that he would save us. And notice that it was a good thing. It was a blessing. It was God's grace that the child would die early. Did did you notice that? Although it was unbearable news for humans, it was grace from God for that child. He'd never have to see his parents killed, his siblings, his aunts and uncles, all the people that he's ever known. He'd never have to see that. He'd just be come and brought home to be with God. So consider that. It was God's grace that a child not be subjected to the pain of life, a difficult life. It was grace that saved that child and brought him home. Now, brother and sister, with all that we've looked at, with all that we've read, in my mind, that about settles it, okay? That God saves children. He cares for children on this earth, and when they die, when, when they, whether in the womb or outside of the womb, he cares for them and he takes them home. I'm convinced from the scriptures that God brings babies and children to be with him. Not because I want to believe it, I do, but because I think that's what God tells us in his word. That's what's demonstrated by his grace towards children. Now, I hope and pray that that's reassuring. And it's not just helpful, but it's encouraging to see that the God of justice is the God of mercy and the God of grace. But there are now probably in your mind, there may be two questions that are rolling around in there and that you're not able to ask because of this uh, preaching setup, right? It's not a class where we're able to, to converse back and forth. But two questions may be at the front of your mind just screaming to be answered or they're in the back of your mind and as soon as I say them, you'll say, Yeah, I want to know the answer to those questions. The first one is, if this is true that God cares for children and he saves them and brings them home, when is a child no longer a child? Right? When does that happen where a person is no longer a child, now they're an adult and they're responsible before God? And the second question is, would this apply to people who have never heard the gospel? Hopefully those two questions are in your mind. Uh, and go answer them yourself. No, that's what we're going to take just a minute here. We'll go through this quickly. I know that we've, uh, we've got, we're a little bit short on time. So, these two questions are related to one another, and they need to be answered. So, when is a child no longer a child who would fall under God's special care and grace to save him and bring him home? My three words to answer this are, I don't know. You say, come on. God does. But I think, here's the reason that he doesn't tell us. He does not tell us in his word. As soon as you reach the age of blank, you are now therefore responsible to God. Here's the reason why. Because it's different for every person. It's going to be different for every person. Some children become very quickly aware of themselves and the world, and they understand right from wrong, and they start to pick things up very quickly. Other children seem to take forever before they wake up, right? And listen, more importantly, there are some people who are never capable. They never become capable of comprehending sin and repentance and judgment and grace and mercy. There are some people, I believe they are incapable of comprehending sin and the the gospel still falls upon them by God's special grace and his mercy. There's no chronological age given in scripture. Like when you're three or when you're 12 or when you're 18 or 21, whatever, It seems in the scriptures it's clear you have to have a certain level of comprehension. You have to be able to understand what sin is and what the gospel is before God will hold you accountable for that. I think that's why he didn't tell us. There's not that certain age where it's automatic. Someone could be 35 years old but have the capabilities of a child, a young child, right? So if God had said, well, the age is this, but then someone 
because someone cares for them and loves them. They live past that age, but they're still not able to comprehend. God wouldn't judge them. So he hasn't given us that specific age where this comes true for those people. As for when that happens, when someone reaches the capability to comprehend, sometimes we call it the age of accountability. When is that? Well, again, we don't know, but at some point in the life of every human being, there is a point where that person is capable of comprehending and then makes a decision either to reject or accept Jesus Christ. You remember we looked at the end of Jonah, those children that didn't know their right from their left? That usually happens around five or six years old. Isaiah 7, the child that couldn't say, my mother, my father, speaking like that, that usually somewhere around one year old, right? Think back to last week, we looked at Numbers 14. It was everyone 19 years old and under who would be spared from God's judgment for the people rebelling against God. Then we think about Luke 2. Jesus was 12 years old when he's at the temple and he's asking and answering questions of the people. So is it one year, five year, 12 years, 18, 20, 21, 19? God doesn't give us a time. But he tells us to teach the children, to care for the children until the time that he gives them the ability to understand and receive and accept and respond correctly. So don't worry about starting too early like you're going to bring judgment upon your own child because God will bring about his work. He cares for them. He cares for them even more than you and I do. He'll make sure they're cared for. He is good and he's just. So what about the second question then? What about people who have never heard of Jesus? Aren't they incapable of responding to the gospel because they haven't heard? And the answer to that, I believe, is no. And here's why. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You know, if, if you're capable of understanding the gospel and you hear the gospel and you reject it, then you're responsible. But what if you haven't heard the gospel? Would God still hold you responsible? I believe that he tells us they are in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, a child is incapable of looking at creation and deducing there is an almighty God, there's a good God. He made all of this. He made me. I need to worship him. But an adult is capable of doing that. With all, a, an adult human being with all of his or her faculties available that God normally gives to people, there, God says there is no excuse. Why? Because any able-minded person can observe creation and clearly see God's work in it. But that person must then make a decision on his or her own whether to accept or reject that God. And if that person accepts, yes, I see God clearly. He's an amazing God. He's a good God. If that person accepts that, then they'll say, you know, I need to find out more about this God. God will lead that person to his word and find Jesus Christ. 
with the revelation that you're given, you're responsible before God. We who have creation and our faculties to comprehend what God has done are responsible for that knowledge. And we who have the Word of God in our laps, in our, on our phones, on the internet, at, at our fingertips, will be responsible for what God has given to us in His Word to know. But even those who do not have His Word will be re- held responsible by God. He says they're without excuse for rejecting God if that's what they do. I reject that there's a God. It's all by accident. It's all by chance. You're not even going to search for Jesus. You're you're not going to look for the Word of God and understand and accept. God says they're without excuse. Jesus said in John 8, 42, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I'm here. So if you believe in the Father, you, you truly see the Father, you truly believe in Him, He will lead you to His Word, and you will believe the Son. 1 John 2.23 also says, no one who denies the Son has the Father either, right? It's a two-for-one deal. You, you, when you believe in God, you'll believe in His Son. When you believe in His Son, you believe in Him truly and rightly. And if you reject one, you'll reject the other. So all of us who are able to see creation, all of us who are able to understand and hear the word of God, God will hold us accountable. And he says that we are without excuse, but children who can't understand won't be held accountable. I don't believe. And hopefully that is encouraging to you because God cares for children. He cares for children. That's why he made them in the womb. That's why he made them in in conception, from conception through the end of their life. That's why he cares for them and makes them especially cared for from the time that they're born through the rest of their life. They're cared for by their parents. So our application, what we take from here, from these lessons this morning and and what we need to do, first we need to trust the Lord to care for you and for your family. Trust in the Lord to care for you and your family. Like we said, when God creates all of us, we are his children. Every single person on this planet is his children in the sense that he has fathered them in creation. Now, we who are believers have a special connection with God as, as his very sons and daughters in Jesus. But for our time on this earth, we can trust the Lord to care for us and our family no matter what's going on, no matter what happens, until the day that he says, you're coming home to me, and then he stops <laughs> because he'll never stop caring for us in, in heaven. But we won't have to eat there, right? We won't have to sleep there. But we trust him to care for us and for our family. Next, care for your children. If you have children, or if you are caring for children, if you have children in your home who aren't yours, grandparents raising grandchildren, aunts or uncles raising nieces and nephews, uh, people who have adopted or fostering children, care for your children. Those children God has given you, He's brought them into your home to care for them physically and spiritually, as we talked about, as we learned from His Word. That's what he wants us to be doing. That's what he tells us to be doing. Care for your children. Finally, that last blank there, care for all children. Care for all children. All children belong to God. They're his. And they're gifts from him, and he tells us that he wants us to care for them. If that's what's important to God, that needs to be important to us as well. Now, we've only covered two ways that we can see from God's word that that children are, are precious to him, that they're special to him, he cares for them. Lord willing, next week we'll finish up. We've got two more ways to see it, but I I hope this is an encouragement and a blessing to you as it has been to me. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are so good, that you are so great, 
God, you are a God of justice, Lord, and you will punish sin because, Lord, it's, it's wrong for us to sin against you. You're so good. You're, you're the creator. You've made us all in your image. God, you've given us everything we need to live. But God, despite all of that, we've turned against you. We've rebelled against you, Father, in our sin. We have said we don't need you and we don't want you. God, we pray that you would forgive us for that. Lord, as we have celebrated the Lord's Supper, God, we have celebrated the fact that you have brought to us forgiveness, that you will cleanse us from all of that sin in Jesus Christ when we turn to him in belief and repentance. Lord, I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know what that means, they would come talk to one of us, that they would not leave until they have understood what you have said and that, God, they would respond by believing in you and turning from sin. God, we thank you for your work in us. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us. Father, thank you for the grace you've given to our children. Lord, to give them to us as gifts, I pray that you would give us the energy that we need to care for them. Lord, it's so difficult at times to care for them in the middle of the night or to care for them during the day after not sleeping at night. Lord, when, when they're disobedient, when they're rebellious, God, it just it shows us your grace toward us because that's how we are to you. God, I pray that you would help us Give us a greater love for children and a, a special care for them, Lord, that you would be glorified. Because, God, people take care of children every day. All throughout this world that happens because of your common grace. But, Lord, I pray that you would give us an extra measure of special grace to care for your children. God, we thank you for Jesus. We pray that you would make us more like him and that we would speak of him to our children, that we would teach our children about him. Lord, that we would teach them to love him as we learn to love him more. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.